Yo, 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 hey, 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 we are back! Ah! Another episode of Dialogue Heavy and with George Shirley, Michael, Anthony McMillan. Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever you are. Thank you for listening to your boy. So as you know, we got to be intentional and deliberate with everything that we want to accomplish in this life. So I will tell you two things. One, that I want to share my stories with my friends, family, and loved ones. And two, you know, garden the attention of the people who can help me share these beautiful stories with the world. Speaking of stories, we are talking of hindsight chapter five tonight. And as you know, um, this is about Bernard, a gentleman that's trying to rob some people who have robbed him of his vocation, of his job, and he wants to get him before he leaves. And um, in this last chapter, we went on a little memory lane and dug even deeper into Leonard's past. And we learned that he had a twin brother or Bernard's past. He has a twin brother named Leonard, older than him by 11 minutes, twins. And um, talked to his past of how um, this is uh, the Wardruff isn't his first scam. Actually, back in Tennessee, he scammed a lot. And he actually made a business out of it and turned that business into a legitimate business without even getting caught. Uh, We also learned of the love of his life, uh, a young woman named Talia. And um, and he met her in in high school and stuff. And his twin brother and her were all great friends. Um, uh, Fast forwarding through the businesses, he was also in the military. That's how he was able to fold all that dirty money into clean money. And... uh, uh, when he had to leave out into the military, unfortunately for everybody involved, Talia fell in love with Lenny, Benny's twin brother. And when he came back and, or what they wrote him a dear John letter. And when he came back ready to kill everybody, he was yet surprised again by the fact that they had had a child and that child he just fell in love with. So he's the uncle of a child who he felt like should have been his daughter and that's what had him leave to New York. So, yeah, it's been some tragic stuff. We found out now how he got to New York in the first place. And um, towards the end of the chapter, uh, while he's in the dealings of the Wardorf, still trying to plan everything out with his co-workers, his brother, the one that betrayed him and broke his heart, is coming to visit him. And told him why he came to visit him was he's dying. Now, our uh, main character, Benny Bernard, did not give up, did not greet him, did not welcome him to New York and um, told him to fuck off and that he was leaving. And that's kind of where we left it. He, um, he he didn't care that his brother was dying. He was happy that his brother was dying. You know, it's probably just a play on his heart, you know, from everything, not being able to repair himself from all, everything that's happened in the past. But he left him and he went to go... Um, go talk to his crew from the Waldorf to uh, uh, do the last finalizing plans before they run their scam. So that's what we're going to start at today in chapter five of hindsight. So, you know, without further ado, I bring to you chapter five. And as you know, everything on this podcast, the dialogue, dialogue heavy podcast has at this point been written and recited by yours truly, Michael Anthony McMillan. So here we go. Hindsight chapter five. So for those of you not from New York, Central Park is a very different place at night. The same beautiful mason bridges and huge American elm trees 
that keep you from being burnt to a crisp in the day make way to some very dark characters and shady dealings once the sun beds behind all those skyscrapers you see on the touring brochures. So my advice is to stick to Times Square and other lit areas that house plenty of people. And there I stood in a wind chill of 28 degrees amongst a, a crew of castoffs plotting to take millions of dollars from people smarter than me and if caught from people who would kill me and anyone else involved without thinking twice. And that's when I thought, what the hell am I thinking? I mean, yeah, I was pissed that I was going to lose my job. I was angry when I heard that. I was angry. I, I was angry when I heard Mr. Calhoun and Mr. Ehlers talk about me like a dog. Like all my years at the Waldorf meant next to nothing. But I was also the one who ran away from Tennessee with nothing after making plenty to spite my brother and Talia. I was the one who came to New York and settled for a shitty, unchallenging job. I was the one who pissed away my life savings with Dino, even though Ms. Gailey gave me tips on the stock market every day from day one. And now I was going to try to pull off yet another scam and possibly risk getting my coworkers and people that I actually cared about killed? I couldn't do that shit. In fact, I wasn't going to do that shit. And right before I was to spill my guts to the crew, tell them to go home and meet me at the food stamp line the next week, Laratia told me, Federico, and the rest of the crew a story that changed everything. So about a month ago, both Lenny and Laratia got ridden up by Elite Door Service for switching shifts without having authorization to do so. And who told the company of the change? Truman. But what I thought was strange after that blew over was the fact that Laratia didn't come to work for two weeks after because she didn't get suspended. Now, I originally thought it had something to do with Truman being the snitch that he was, but that wasn't the case at all. Laratia, on the day in question, asked Lenny if she could switch shifts with him so she could spend some extra time with her boyfriend, Ty, a young rapper that was leaving town later that day to tour with his little rap group. Lenny, being the consummate sweetheart, obliged the youngster, and Laratia worked overnight. Okay, so that evening, Mr. Calhoun allowed his great-nephew, Peter Calhoun, to have a party in his unit while he too was out of town to honor a promotion he himself manufactured with the Teamsters Union. It was nepotism, of course. The kid just turned 25, had only been working for the union for three years, and was going to be making a million plus dollars a year. But whatever, that was besides the point. Anyway, Laratia had been getting noise complaints all night from the residents on Mr. Calhoun's floor, and Peter and his frat, frat bros were the cause. She called and asked Peter politely to keep the noise down as quiet time came into effect after 10 p.m. in the Waldorf. But within minutes, she would get another call and another and another. Finally, Laratia had to go up there to the unit to make contact. And when she arrived, she was met with catcalls and hollering from these rich white boys that apparently never got ass whoopings as a child. Now, the only mistake Laratia made that night was entering Mr. Calhoun's unit. We had a strict policy to never enter a residence without the owning resident being present, or at the very least, two members of the board in the, in the absence of the resident. But Laratia figured, being around the age of the partiers, that she, more than any of us old guys, knew the language and how to handle the, them on her own. Laratia was 
from Brooklyn as well. She'd seen scarier things on the rough streets she grew up on than some rich, some young rich white boys whose idea of a tragedy was spilling red wine on their their lacrosse polos. But that was mistake number two. And number three was accepting a drink from the partiers once inside that was laced with fentanyl. Next thing Laration knew, the room was spinning. The death metal blaring was overwhelming and all she wanted to do was lay down. And who do you think was there to comfort her and chaperone her to a private room for two? Old Peter Calhoun. And he would do things to her that night she would never forget. Once Peter started to grope Laracia, she said no. And she told him to stop. But her physical body was powerless in trying to fight that piece of shit off of her. She can feel his small, flaccid penis into her over and over. She can see his sweaty, pimpled face peer down on her with aggression, but she can do nothing. She said it was like an outer body experience and her inner self screamed at the top of her lungs the whole time, though nothing came out of her mouth. And when, she, when, and when he was finished, he whispered in her ear that there was no use in reporting the incident because his great uncle had the greatest lawyers, police officers, and judges of New York on his payroll. And if that didn't work, the mafiosos that his uncle paid would take care of her. So, unfortunately, like most victims of sexual assault, Laracia kept her mouth shut, stayed quiet, and said nothing in fear of losing her job that paid less than $20,000 a year. She took those two weeks off to grieve and cried like someone close to her had died. Because someone had died that night in the master suite of Unit 6210. The young, tough, but also naive girl who loved her family and supported her boyfriend's dreams of being a rapper with those Wardorf checks was replaced by a less confident, damaged woman. And worse still, not only did she not initially blame Peter for raping her, Laracia somehow made it up in her mind that it was all her own fault. But out of pure financial necessity, she pulled herself together, went back to work, and she even found the courage to confront Peter's dumbass when he came to visit his uncle. When, she, when he came to visit his uncle. And Mr. Calhoun, being a man that had probably done some stupid shit like that to the measure of his nephew and his youth, played it cool, and he offered Laracia hush money. But when she scoffed at the disrespect, he slammed the door in her face and never spoke to her again. Motherfucker. Well, needless to say, after hearing that tragic tale, none of us guys or Lay or Laracia were thinking about the wind chill that night in the park. In fact, it was the opposite. We were all afire. And the heist was not only back on, but I could have put together a plot right there to have Mr. Calhoun and his shit-eating nephew thrown off the top of the fucking Wardorf building. We huddled around Laracia that night, hugged and cried, then spoke. Hugged that night and hugged, cried, then spoke of everyone's individual roles for the robbery. And by the time we left out of the darkness of Central Park, we were all changed from nice, kind doormen into a cold, calculated team, hell-bent on getting revenge for not only ourselves, but for Laracia. And we didn't give a fuck about what the repercussions were going to be. Chapter 6. Leading up to the day everything went down, my brother and I were like a dysfunctional married couple. I let him stay at my place, but I wouldn't talk to him, and every time he tried to bring up his side of the past, I would just leave. 
I had a whole lot of shit going on in my head. So I didn't have time for his sob story of why he did what he did. And I lived through it with him as well, once. So there was no need for him to reiterate. But as twins, there is a bond that even blood siblings can't possibly understand. And on top of that, he knew what my only kryptonite in this life was. And he had her waiting for me one day when I returned home from work. Uncle Benny! I heard when I walked through the door. And even with her being a grown woman, I could still hear the same voice of the child I'd left behind in Tennessee 20 plus years ago. Hey! I yelled, then hugged Zania. She was perfect and as beautiful as ever. It was like everything my brother did erased, erased when I saw her, or at least it, I didn't care anymore. She was a light in an old man's broken heart that I didn't even know that I needed. I took Zania out that night and my brother did me a favor by leaving us alone. She told me everything I wanted to hear about the rest of her childhood and eventually even everything I didn't want to hear about becoming a woman and boys. But honestly, even that was okay because I was just happy to be with her again. I couldn't keep my eyes off of her as she smashed french fries into her ketchup or when she sipped on her cherry Coke. We laughed, we cried, and she forgave me for leaving her. I didn't understand how or why she would until she told me something I never got, never forgot since. Because I love you, Uncle Benny, and life is too short. It was simple to her that I was a hurting old man who had been betrayed. Never mind that I had left her at her most vulnerable state and she had to grow up without my love, care, and advice. She told me that she can only forgive me if I forgave myself first, and I just about lost it in the middle of the diner a 10 minute walk away from my home. I couldn't believe how she had acquired so much wisdom in the short time she had been on the planet. And I knew then that Talia and my brother did something right in raising that little girl. I evidently left her in good hands. Well, then our time was cut short that night. Unfortunately, my neighbor called me to tell me that my brother Lenny had been carted off by ambulance to Kings County Hospital. We took a taxi and arrived there not long after him. Now, the dying part of my brother, the dying part my brother spoke about wasn't just a lie he used to get to see me. Apparently, it was level four colon cancer, and the doctors told me he didn't have much time left. Zaniah had told me as much in the diner when she was trying to convince me to take make amends with him before he passed away, but I couldn't fathom it at the time. Zaniah left us back at my apartment the next morning but said she would return after taking care of some business back home. It pained me to see her leave, but I knew what she was trying to do. She loved her father, and she loved her uncle, and she wanted us to love each other again before it was too late and we both regretted it forever. She forgave me so I would be open just enough to forgive him, and she sacrificed her own last days with her father to do so. Damn, that girl had a harder... Damn, that girl has a heart of gold and she was a master scam artist, just like her Uncle Benny. Those last 48 hours with my brother were the hardest but most pleasurable time I'd ever had in New York. But it wasn't because I had to wipe his ass or bathe him. It was because I had to face my past and being forced to do that, I was able to see things from his point of view, his viewpoint and truly understand the discrepancy in our past that I didn't stick around to find out about. See, when I was in the military, in the jungles fighting, 
I'd contracted a flesh-eating disease that killed 92% of everyone affected. I was in horrendous shape and then died a few times. I was gone for two plus years and my family was told if I ever did return, I would be bedridden for the rest of my life. In my absence, my brother prepared himself to take on the role I always played in the family. He stopped going out, stopped using drugs and immersed himself in our businesses so the family wouldn't lose them when I was gone. He also supported a lost woman in Talia who was hurting because the love of her life was all but dead. Unfortunately for everyone involved, that care turned into a love that brought about Zenaya. And when I miraculously recovered, they realized that they had made a mistake that could not ever be reversed. When I returned, of course, I was filled with such rage that I didn't even realize that they weren't even together anymore. And when I left for New York, the thread that kept the three of us inseparable since, since we were teens unraveled and all of us were never, have never been the same. We're never the same. When my brother told me all those parts of the story in my apartment, I didn't know. When my brother told me of all those parts of the story I didn't know back in my apartment, while still angry, I finally understood. He told me how a part of him had been missing since I'd left home, and I understood that too because I felt I felt as I felt that as well, although I never wanted to admit it. We had a few drinks and reminisced about our crazy days. Then, when we caught up, I told him about my gambling, Dino, and what had happened at the Wardorf. Then after hearing of my plans, Lenny surprised me with an escape route that I never thought about, and I told him he was batshit crazy for even thinking up. That night would be the last night I saw my brother alive, and I'll never forget the time we shared. He left me with a parting gift, that would prove to be something I would never have agreed to, but was thankful for all the same. And boom. So there you have it, man. Chapter five and chapter six of hindsight. I promise you guys, we are getting to the robbery soon. <laughs> but when you write stories like this, especially short story form, you have to stuff the past or the information of the main character and their intentions um, within the confines of the story. But I promise you, we're getting there. But yeah, that's it. That's all for this week. I'm going to come to you next week. It should We should be around at the robbery next week. But um, yeah, it's going well, man. I'm enjoying... Um, telling this story and I believe now in my head I have our um our exit strategy so yeah I will see you next week guys thank you guys for listening I hope you liked it I hope you loved it and if not I hope you listened and you learned something from it so I will talk to you soon thank you again I appreciate you I love you you know where you can contact me on my Instagram at Michael DeGrio or on my email mzzack199 at gmail.com until then I will holler at you talk to you later peace I'm out of here.